Okay, well, good morning. As Matt said, we are going to continue through Genesis today, and we'll be in chapter 6. And we're going to start what I think is probably one of the most familiar stories in the Bible, and that is of Noah and the story of the flood and the building of the ark. And I have maybe an even more intimate um, view of the story of Noah recently. Um, My son went through a, a Noah phase, so we've got a children's Bible at home. And um, it seemed like almost every night he wanted to read the story of Noah. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a fun story for kids, I suppose. There was these uh, kind of like stick figure men, and it was describing how people had become so wicked. And they're like wrestling and fighting in the sand. And um, then there's the picture of Noah, and he's got all of his tools. My son loves tools, hammers, saw, he's got it all. And so this picture of Noah, and he's like hammering on the ark. And then you flip the page, and all these animals are kind of lined up. To- and they're coming into the ark, and he just loved the story, and so we read it a lot. And as I was going through Genesis 6, I've realized that I've brought a, I've, I've, I've superimposed the children's version of Genesis 6 onto what the Bible's actually saying. And I don't know, you know, maybe that's something that, that you will find that you have done today as well. But there's a lot more going on in Genesis 6 than just people were bad and Noah built the ark and the animals came. There's a whole lot more going on than just those things. And I think that we'll find today that most of those things that are going on are things that could never make it into the children's version of this story. So we're in Genesis 6 today. We're going to talk about Noah. But we're actually going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 28. That's where we first encountered Noah two weeks ago when Tyler preached of the, the genealogies there. So I'm going to pray for us quickly, and then I think Kelly's going to come and read for us. Father, thank you that we can examine your word this morning. Thank you that you give us your word. It's alive. As Matt said, it cuts our hearts, it teaches us, it instructs us, it encourages us, it rebukes and corrects us at times. And so I pray that as we hear your word and as we digest it this morning, that you will be at work in our hearts to understand from the story of Noah and the faith that he had in you. Help us to understand what it is that you're trying to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Kelly, if you want to come. Um, beginning in Genesis chapter 5, verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that, this, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. So we're going to see there's four main points this morning um, that God's showing us through this, this text. The first is that man is very wicked. The second will be that God grieves over man's wickedness. The third will be that God punishes man's wickedness. And the fourth will be that God offers man grace. 
So let's start with point number one. Man is very wicked. Chapter 6 has two paragraphs in the beginning that tell a story before we actually learn about the, the coming flood. And this story is going to paint a picture of how mankind has continued to kind of unravel on the earth. Your Bible may even include an, an extra little subheader in there that says something like the increasing corruption on earth. So before we learn about the increasing corruption on earth, let's, let's take a, just a second to kind of do a, a quick overview of what has happened since Adam and Eve were first created in the garden. So that starts back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We see that Eve chooses to listen to the deceitfulness of sin. She chooses the, the lie of sin over the, over the truth of God, and she eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In that same verse, we see that Adam kind of stands to the side and watches as his wife is being deceived by sin and uh, choosing sin, and he doesn't intervene. He doesn't speak truth. He doesn't remind Eve of what God said. He doesn't rebuke the tempter. He just stands there. And then he makes matters worse by participating in the same sin that Eve had participated in. When we get to Genesis 4, chapter 5, we see that Cain gets angry with God. If you remember a few weeks ago, Cain and Abel, they come and they give their sacrifices, and God accepts Abel's, and he rejects Cain's, and he rejects Cain's because Cain did not have faith. And so Cain gets angry with God. A few verses later in 4, verse 8, we see that Cain's anger turns to jealousy, and that jealousy leads him to kill Abel. So we've got murder. In 419, we see that Lamech, and this is Lamech that was in Cain's lineage, becomes the first polygamist. He rejects God's parameters for marriage, and he takes multiple wives. And then in a few verses later, in 423, that same Lamech, um, well, he, he, he boasts about committing murder. Um, he's a great guy. So, you can see very quickly that in the span of just a few short chapters, we've gone from Adam and Eve walking in the garden in God's presence to now we've got lies, deceit, cowardice, anger, two murders, sexual immorality, and boasting about murder. Mankind is unraveling extremely quickly, and walking with God in the cool of the garden seems like it's a very long way off. So now we'll see in chapter 6 that the downward spiral of man's wicked heart has hit an all-time low. Let's go back and we'll read chapter 6 again, verses 1 through 4, and see what's going on here. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So this story is maybe a little admittedly confusing uh, on its face, but it's here to show us just how sinful man had become. And so I think there's two main 
main points in this, this brief story here. The first is that it mentions a group of people, and so we need to figure out who these people are. And then the second is it says that they did something that God clearly didn't like, and so we need to figure out what it is that they did that displeased God. So first, let's look at the group of people, and we'll figure out who they are. First two mentions uh, the sons of God, which is a, a bit of a vague and, and somewhat odd phrase, the sons of God. So who are the sons of God? We find a reference to the sons of God in Job chapter 1. It doesn't, in the immediate context of these verses, it doesn't really tell us specifically who the sons of God are. But the same phrase is used in Job chapter 1. I think we have it on the screen for you. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In this story... If of Job, the angels are coming to present themselves to God, and, and Satan is there with them. And so the sons of God has a, an angelic notation to it. It's some kind of angelic being. So that starts to fill in the picture for us of who the sons of God are, but it's not quite complete because we'll see as we go through the story that these angelic beings are doing some pretty detestable things. So I think we need to also look at a passage that is in Jude that talks further about these angelic beings to kind of get the complete picture of what's going on here. In Jude, it talks about angels who have abandoned their position of authority. So think about you've got angels who have abandoned their position of authority. Does that remind you of anything? Right, Satan, demons. So I think it's true to say, based on the text of the Bible, that where chapter 6, verses one, verse 1, references the sons of God, that there's some kind of demonic activity that's taking place here. I've read a lot on this because, again, it was a little bit odd and, and maybe vague, and, and there's not a consensus opinion of, of what sons of God means. But the majority opinion is what I just shared with you, that there's some kind of demonic activity Um, that's taking place here. And we'll see in a minute when we talk about what they were doing that upset God, that that certainly seems to be in keeping uh, with the text. So we also see another group of people in here that are called the Nephilim. If we look down at verse 4, it says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And they bore children to them, I think is the most important part of that sentence. Again, it's a little bit hazy here, and and there's some conflicting opinions. But the majority opinion is that this people called the Nephilim were the offspring of whatever was happening with the sons of God and the daughters of man. And I know we're talking about, like, some some demonic activity, and there's offspring from it, and it's... Again, a little maybe hazy, but I think that's okay. And it's, the reason I think that's okay is because this part isn't the main point of this story here. If God wanted us to fully understand who the sons of God were, I think he would have told us very explicitly, this is what the sons of God were, and this is why I called them sons of God. But that's not what he does. It's kind of vague. But there's something else in here that is not vague at all. There's actually two things in here that he tells us in extremely clear terms. And that is what they were doing and how he felt about what they were doing. So let's look at what it is exactly 
that they were doing. I'll read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 again. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. There's three things to me that stand out in these sentences. The first is that it says they were attractive. Physical attraction was the driving factor here. Maybe another way of putting it would be lust. They saw women that were attractive, and they lusted after them. The second is what they did with that lust, which is it says that they took them. They took them to be their wives. So this would not be a traditional marriage arrangement. Culturally, at that time, marriages were were more like between families and negotiated, and I paid the dowry and that kind of thing. And even in maybe a more modern construct of marriage, this isn't the man going and asking the, the woman's father for permission. There's none of that going on. It's, oh, she's attractive, I'll take her. This word has kind of a heavy connotation, but I think rape may be an appropriate word to use here. At the very least, it's not going too far to say that that was taking place. And then the third thing that really stuck out to me was it says any that they chose. And through the word any, I think there's an emphasis there on quantity. It could be this one, it could be that one, it could be this one. Whatever, whatever pleased me, whatever satisfied the lust that I had, I would take. And so this is forcibly taking any number of women based purely on lust and making them comply to become my wife. So that certainly would qualify as kind of like evil, demonic activity, which I think maybe paints a little more clear picture about the definition that we just talked about of sons of God. And so then, as if it couldn't get any worse than what I just described, we read in verse 4 that they're called the mighty men of old, men of renown. These mighty men were using their, their might to force women to become their wives based purely on lust, and then they became famous for it. They were celebrated. They were, they were men of renown. Clearly, that is all wicked. And so now, we're going to see that God is going to tell us exactly how he feels or how he would describe what is taking place. Let's look at verse 5. It says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Fast forward to verse 11 and 12, and we'll read there as well. It says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Every intention was only evil continually. The entire earth entire earth, this isn't hyperbole, the entire earth was filled with violence. There was no law, there was no justice, there was no peace, there was no safety. So think about that for a minute. You live in a world where there's no law, no justice, no peace, no safety. And as we move from verse 5 into verse 6, we see Verse 5 describing 
man's heart and the wickedness that filled man's heart. And then in verse 6, we're going to contrast that and we're going to see God's heart about what's going on. Let's read verse 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he, that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. God's heart grieved because his creation, mankind, had become so wicked. Which brings us to point number two. God grieves man's wickedness. I'm going to point us back to the text again because I just feel like that's important for us to be in here. Let's look at verse 6 again. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And then it continues in 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's heart is full of sorrow in this instance. He's made man. He declared it good. Man has chosen time and time and time again sin. And God is grieved over that. He's brokenhearted. He's full of pity and compassion, but his heart is broken for man. Again, I think it's important to emphasize that man has continued to choose sin over this time. That's what's breaking God's heart. And so I ask you, how does it land on you thinking about God grieving over man's sin? How does it land on you that God, first of all, has emotions, but then that sadness and grief and brokenheartedness can be some of them? How does it land on you when you think about the fact that when God sees your sin, that it breaks his heart? I wonder how it would impact us individually to sit and think about that. To think about when I sin, God is grieving. Or maybe even what would it look like for you to be grieved to the heart, as it said God was, over your own sin? I think these are maybe helpful questions to to chew on. God is grieved and heartbroken, and yet he continues to endure man's sin. But things have now gotten so bad that he says, I'm not going to endure it forever. I'm going to set a limit. And so let's look back at verse 3. It says that the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. I used to think that this verse talked about mankind in general. Like, okay, God's limiting everyone to 120 years. And as I I dug into this In the last few weeks, that's not what this verse is at all. This is not a a blanket statement that mankind is now limited to 120 years. God is very specifically saying to the people on earth at this time, I'm only giving you another 120 years. I'm not going to put up with this forever. But he gave them 120 years to process the fact that they are not living well and that they need to turn from what they're doing. That is so much patience and so much grace Just think about waiting 120 years patiently, enduring something for that long. 
could, I mean, how, how long are you able to wait for things? I have very little patience, admittedly. And um, my daughter, who's laying on the floor back here, is uh, six months old. And she's going through a phase right now where I don't even know how to describe the noise. It's like part groan, part grunt, part moan. When she wants something, she wants attention, she wants food, she wants you to put her on her in a new position, belly to back, that kind of thing. It's the worst noise I've ever heard. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> I, can't, I can do it for like 60 seconds, and then I'm at, completely at my limit. Here's a bottle. I mean, what would you want to buy you a car? What, whatever, <laughs> whatever you want. Just please stop making that noise. <clears throat> And that's 60 seconds. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, actually. (laughs) Thankfully, God is not like us, though. Our anxiety, our anger, our lust, our lies, our half-truths. He is so patient with us day after day after day after day. But it wasn't just for 120 years, as long of a period of time as that is, that God endured man's sin. I really like this. It's kind of a cool thing. Do you remember Enoch from two weeks ago? Enoch was in the, the genealogies that Tyler shared. And Enoch was unique because he was the only one that didn't die in that. It said that Enoch was taken up by God, I think, was the, the verbiage there. Well, if we flip to Jude, we'll see that Jude talks about a prophecy that Enoch gave. And what he prophesied about takes place here in chapter 6. So let's read Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their, ungodly, uh, of all of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way And all of the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So I'm going to maybe do a little quasi-math here. So try to to follow along. So Enoch prophesied that there would be consequences for man's sin. But Enoch died before Noah was born. Tyler's chart uh, that he had showed us that. So Enoch dies before Noah's born. Noah has his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, when he's 500 years old. That means that Enoch prophesied to the people 500 years before this story of Noah and the ark takes place. So God didn't just wait 120 years. He waited over 500 years, patiently enduring man's wickedness. And yet he wasn't even just patiently enduring man's wickedness. Because it wasn't a passive waiting. He sent Enoch as a messenger. Like, hey guys, you're not living right. Judgment is going to come. You're sinning, and I'm going to judge your sin. He sent Enoch 500 years before this story. He could have just grieved patiently and quietly and then enacted judgment one day. But his heart was for man to repent. And so he continued to be patient And he sent Enoch as a messenger to try to help point the people in the right direction. And the same thing is true today because we have a great God whose character doesn't change. He's still grieved to the heart by our sin today, just like he was in this story. He is still patient with our sin today, just like he was in this story. And he still warns us of the coming judgment of our sin today, like he did in this story. 
But like verse 3 showed us, there is a limit, and God will not endure man's wickedness forever. And so for these people at this time, he said, you have another 120 years. And then he was going to judge the wickedness. And so point number three today is that God punishes man's wickedness. Let's go back to the text one more time, and we'll pick up in verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then move forward to verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So there's punishment for wickedness. God says in 120 years, I am going to punish wickedness. He will bring about justice. And he's righteous in punishing sin because he created man in his own image. Man is created on the earth to proclaim the goodness of God by acting in accordance to God's nature. That's how we were created all the way back in the garden, starting with Adam. We were created to act in accordance to God's nature. But when we choose sin, we choose to not act in accordance to God's nature. God gave life. Man was committing murder. God gave Adam one wife. Man took many wives. God's heart is filled with love continually. Man's heart has been filled with evil continually. God is patient And we see that man had been full of violence. And so God declares very clearly to Noah that he's going to wipe everyone and everything out. He's going to kill them all. And this is God's righteous judgment. Sin must be punished by death, just like he told Adam and Eve when he told them not to eat from the tree. But a strange thing happened in verse 13 that did not happen In verse 7, both of those verses, God declared that he was going to end everything. But in verse 7, God makes a general declaration. He's just kind of speaking. In verse 13, however, God specifically speaks to Noah to tell him that he's going to destroy all living creatures. It says, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. So if you're Noah... Think about that. Not only does God come and talk to you, but he tells you, I'm going to end all flesh. So Noah had to be thinking that he's included in that statement. I always kind of blast through chapters like this, and so this was fun for me to kind of try to slow down as I was reading it these last few weeks and allow human emotion to come into the story. So let's do that for a second. Let's put ourselves in Noah's shoes. Back in verse 9, it told us that Noah was a righteous man. Obviously, he was a sinner. Everyone was sinners at that point. But the rest of mankind has clearly been full of awful wickedness that we've kind of talked about this morning. So I wonder if maybe like from a cultural standpoint, if Noah felt a little bit like a fish out of water at times. Like these people are doing this thing, but I have faith in God, and so I'm not doing it. I think we can probably relate to that at times in our lives. Perhaps he felt alone. Certainly, he didn't feel like he fit in fully. And now God tells him that he's going to be wiped off the face of the earth with the same wickedness that he has 
maybe been ostracized by or made fun of or made to feel like an outcast at times. And so I'm sure it's very confusing to him right now. Why have I been living the way I am if I'm going to get wiped out with all these other people? He's remembering the times that he's been mocked or made to feel foolish. And that's got to be creating some emotions inside of Noah. Not only is God talking to him, but he's hearing something that really is like internally not jiving. But then God goes even further and tells Noah that he needs to do something. So Noah just got the information that he's going to die with everyone else. But now God says, before you die, (laughs) I want you to build a giant ark, which is probably very confusing to Noah because he thinks that he's dying, right? Remember that God hasn't told Noah that he's going to be saved by the ark yet. He gives him instructions. I want you to go and build this vessel. And it's a a vast, unfathomable project that God's giving Noah in the middle of the desert, which doesn't make sense that you need a boat in the middle of the desert either. And so he finishes giving Noah all these instructions for how how to build the ark, the three decks and this long and this wide and pitch up to here, all of that. He finishes with one final declaration to Noah in verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. He says, For behold, this is still God speaking, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So if it wasn't clear before, it's very clear now. Everything is going to die. And so just think about Noah and how how he's receiving this information. I've got to build this gigantic thing. I believe in God. I have faith in God. And he's telling me to do this thing that just doesn't make sense. And he's telling me that he's going to kill me, I think. But then suddenly Noah's entire reality changes. And it changes with the very first word of verse 18. It says, but. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So point number four here is that God offers man grace. This is nothing short of a miracle for Noah. He thought he was dying a minute ago, and now he's learning that not only will Noah be rescued, but his wife and his sons and his sons' wives are all going to be rescued through this confusing, seemingly daunting, undoable project that God has given him. God offers grace to Noah. And it says so in verse 8. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word for favor and the word for grace are are the same thing. And so we, we can say favor, but we're not wrong in saying grace. God's showing grace to Noah in this moment. Noah did not earn this grace. Noah hasn't built the boat yet, so it's not that he built the boat and therefore God gave him grace. God chooses to give him grace, and then he binds it in a covenant with Noah. And if we read ahead just a little further, we'll see that Noah then responds in faith to God's grace by doing what God commanded him. Chapter 6, 22 
Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Chapter 7, verse 9. As God commanded Noah. Chapter 7, verse 16. As God had commanded him. Noah was faithful. He was obedient to what God had commanded him. And so notice the order of events here because I think this is very important. Verse 8 said God gave grace to Noah. Verse 18 said God made a covenant with Noah. And then verse 22 says that God does what Noah commanded him. The same order of events is true for us today as well. God chooses us. He shows us grace. He establishes a covenant with us through Jesus. And then we respond in obedience. The New Testament sheds a little bit more light on what's happening in Noah's heart while all of this is going on. While, while the, the obedience is taking place. And so we can see that a little more clearly if we go to Hebrews 11, verses 6 through 7. I think that's up here as well. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So what was it that caused Noah to do all that God commanded him? It was his faith. Now, the contrarian may argue, like, yeah, but God already told Noah that he's going to save him in the ark, so... Is it really faith? I mean, God told him what was going to happen. But does he really know that God's going to save him? It's not raining yet. There's no water anywhere. He doesn't see anything dying yet. So I think it's fair to say that until Noah sees the world flooded and everything dead and just he and his family in the ark, that until that happens... He's still operating in faith. He doesn't know for sure that God's going to do what he said he would do. So then it begs the question, well, what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? What did it mean for Noah to act in faith? Again, we can look at Hebrews to tell us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Noah is placing his assurance in the fact that God will do what as of now Noah can't see, that he's going to actually do that. Noah is believing that God is going to judge the sin of the world by destroying all flesh, just as he said he was going to do. And Noah is further believing that his only way of being saved is through the provision that God is giving him to build the ark. Remember that back in verse 9, it said that Noah was described as being a righteous and a blameless man. Why is that? What made Noah righteous and blameless at this point? It was his faith in a time when the rest of mankind was spiraling out of control and devolving into increasingly egregious types of sin. 
Noah behaved differently because of his faith. The story of Noah and the flood happened a very long time ago. But these four points could just as easily apply to life today. Man is still very wicked. God still grieves over man's wickedness. God still punishes man's wickedness. And God still offers man grace. Friends, we are all born into sin. We may not commit murder. We may not boast about murder. We may not take a harem. But we are still stained with the wickedness of sin. And God is still grieved to the heart over our sin. His heart breaks when we choose to sin, when we choose against him. God still punishes sin. For Noah's contemporaries, that punishment was the flood that came and wiped everyone off the earth. It came in the form of a flood. For us, though, that punishment will come when we stand before the throne of God one day, before his judgment seat, and we give account for our time on the earth. At that time, all sin will be punished. God also still offers man grace, and that grace that he offers us to be saved from his judgment, as Noah was saved from the flood, still comes through faith, just as it was with Noah. For Noah, it was faith that God really was going to destroy mankind through the flood and that he needed to build the ark to be rescued. For us, we are saved by faith, faith in Jesus, faith that he really is the Son of God, although we can't see it. Faith that he really did live a sin-free life, although we can't see it and touch it and interact with it. Faith that he really did die on the cross to not only cleanse us from our sins, but to impart his righteousness to us as well. Our part, just as it was for Noah, is to have faith and believe that what God says is true. Thankfully, the story of Noah and the flood demonstrates for us exactly how we are to respond in faith to our God, who is patient with our sins while extending us vast amounts of grace. He will punish all sin one day, but thankfully we have Jesus and his righteousness to save us. Let's pray.